0: Hi there, this is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. I'm so grateful you've joined us for our study through the doctrine of repentance. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon on the doctrine of repentance. Good evening to you. We doing well tonight? Yes. Okay, thank you. Well, wow. starting to feel really insecure. As many of you, if not all of you, know, we've been working through the doctrine of repentance. What does it mean to actually repent? And as we begin tonight's study, I I would like to just remind you that there is not a single soul in heaven except Jesus Christ, a single man, woman or child in glory today, who did not repent and live a lifestyle of repentance, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, looking at Christ as the only one who's righteous and fleeing their sins to hide in him. That's the only way I could think to begin this evening. As we've looked at seeing sin, that repentance is seeing sin as God sees it. Repentance is having sorrow over sin. And repentance is confessing sin. Saying what God says about sin. Agreeing with God about sin. Tonight we find that repentance is shame for sin. Repentance is shame for sin. Now, I know many of you have either studied or are studying or will study psychology. So take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. I wanted to begin tonight with an illustration and I think it's a very helpful illustration, okay? In large part, those that I hear who've studied psychology from the world's perspective and those that have studied psychology from the biblical perspective agree on this that modern psychology, modern psychiatry Has done more to injure the human psyche than to help it. Now, did you hear? I think it was about a month ago now. A big story came out of Britain. A British man was arrested, arrested for a tweet. For a tweet. He was arrested for something he posted on Twitter. Because it made people feel anxious. It made people feel anxious. You know what he tweeted? He actually retweeted. It wasn't even his own original post. He retweeted the the pride flags in the shape of a, a swastika. Okay, so four, you can imagine four pride flags that are staggered and the way that a swastika is designed. Why? What was he communicating? He wasn't communicating solidarity with Nazis. He wasn't communicating solidarity with with gay pride. He was communicating that, like the Nazis, the the far left that's controlling uh, much of the world's entertainment and media wants to put people in concentration camps <laughs> where they can't speak, where, where, they're, where they're canceled, where they're mitigated from society. And people complained about his post, concerned about the threat of intimidation. He was posting that, saying, I'm concerned about intimidation and gag orders that are out there. And people complained that he was mentally harming them with anxiety. He was arrested. This was one month ago in Great Britain. This is a first world country. Uh, Many people think that Great Britain is just a few years down the road from where America will go next. Now, here's the question. And I'm not going to be picking on any particular sin, as you will well see. It serves the purpose of illustration. But why did an image fusing sexual pride with Nazis cause anxiety? I think the answer is the same answer that any of us experience any measure of discomfort. When anyone draws any attention to anything with which we struggle. And the issue is shame. Deep abiding shame. Now, in 15 years, that's a very short amount of time. 15 years from 1999 to 2014, the number of Americans who take antidepressants skyrocketed by 65%. That is a sliver of time and a drastic difference, skyrocketing 65%. Why? Why does one in every eight American over the age of 12 use antidepressants? We have to ask ourselves, why do every one in four of those people report being on them over ten years? What's happening? What's going on? Why are modern psychology and psychiatry, yes, I'll say it, making things quantifiably worse? Worse. Worse. Wouldn't we expect to see reversing trends, people getting off of antidepressants over time, if the findings and research of modern psychology and psychiatry were helping people? Wouldn't they be getting off of antidepressants and not going on them in droves? Now, here's the question. Could any of this be linked up, up, up? up with antidepressants because down, down, down goes the society in shameless acts. We're experiencing more and more shame and so we're trying to cloak that shame any way we can. That might be with substances, that might be with medication, that might be with just full unrestrained indulgence in our passions. But could any of this be linked to shame? Shame in the soul. Shame for sin. Now, true repentance requires an actual, knowledgeable, conscience, affectionate shame over sin. We feel shameful about sin. Because sin is shameful genesis 2 ends paradise genesis 1 and 2 you've got a sinless world that God's created where everything's good and it ends with Adam and Eve in a sinless paradise and what are the final two words of this section before genesis 3 where sin enters the last two words that we have in genesis 2 are not ashamed no shame no shame there this is the exclamation point of human innocence there's there's no shame and then what's the instant reaction after Adam and Eve our first parents from whom all people came what's their first reaction their instant reaction after sinning If you wouldn't mind flipping with me Genesis 3 And if you're new to the Bible And you're new to all this Genesis the first book of the Bible It's very simple to find First book of the Bible Third chapter verses 7 and following This is the first sin ever committed By man And all of us were genetically in Adam When he sinned And so we inherited his guilt We inherited his shame for sin. When they sinned, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. You see, that's what shame does. That's what sin does. It brings a shame that wishes to conceal itself. It separates relationship from God. It wishes to hide. It brings fear of condemnation. It ruins the soul. Now fast forward. Go to the New Testament. Flip, flip, flip to Romans 1. Romans 1. So if you go to the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Just to give you a little bit of context as to where you can find the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, speaking of the unrepentant, speaking of society, of civilization, of humanity, born in Adam, inheriting the same sin guilt, all of us in this room were born on equal playing field, and this is the diagnosis from God of the unrepentant man, unrepentant humans, you and I, apart from the saving grace of Christ. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. God gave them over to dishonorable passions for their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committing shameless acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. Now, what is this communicating to us? This is communicating to us the natural, uh, it's unnatural, sin is unnatural to humans, but in the fallen realm as things go if a society, if a people do not repent, if they do not see fit to acknowledge God as the Creator and to say, we are sinful and we need you oh God to tell us how to live we need your righteousness because we have none of our own if, if, if the society does not do that they remain unrepentant scripture tells us that God gives that society first off to a sexual revolution and then from there to a homosexual revolution and then from there to a mental devolution so there's just an uninhibited free love and then it's okay how could we go any further and and you see homosexuals then abound and then from there it's like how can we even go further than this what's male what's female what is sex what is gender and man can't even make sense of what is plainly obvious before their eyes they're given up to a debased mind now friends i don't sit up here and speak from a position of superiority down to the filthy masses. I speak as the worst sinner in this room. And God saved me and is saving me from my sins. And He saves any freely who come confessing, I'm a sinner. I need your righteousness. I need your grace. I need your rescue. Because I'm going to indulge in this lifestyle apart from your rescue, apart from your work. And so here we are. This is us. Sexual revolution. Homosexual revolution. Mental devolution, just utter insanity and madness, pervasive in culture. Are we not seeing that? Sexual revolution in the 60s, homosexual revolution in the decades following that. And for the last decade, we've seen just absolute inhibition uh, in our society. Now, perhaps we didn't hear the sequence of descriptions that God gives here. He says, Lust in heart, desire in heart, becomes impurity in body, becomes impure things we do with our body, becomes dishonorable passions, these dominating cravings, becomes unnatural desires. We we begin to invent new ways to carry out the lusts of our imagination and our body becomes, here it is, shameless, shameless. There's no sense of shame anymore. There's nothing that can make you blush. There's nothing that can embarrass you anymore. What could you possibly do of what you would be ashamed? If, if this is the culture in which we live right now. My friends, this is when the Gospel shines brightest. This is when it stands in sharpest contrast with the darkness of the world. God has given us a tremendous gift in that He's saving us from this dominion of darkness to shine us as light and salt in a world where we are blatantly different. Blatantly different. And if those shameless acts are not repented of. Mental madness. Now, a poll was taken last year, 2021. 2021. Asking what millennials and Gen Zers, that's everyone from ages 13 to 39, what they are most concerned about. Here's the summary. COVID and mental health due to sex, tech, and drug addictions. Mental health issue. You can lump in COVID with mental health issues because it's the anxiety, the the worry, the fear over this. Psychology Today. Psychology Today, the, the magazine or whatever, the article, is filled with articles on failure to cope. That people are going from psychologist to psychologist, psychiatrist to psychiatrist, and they're not gaining any traction against their problems. What is happening? Watch this. I read this text this afternoon with brand new sight. Jeremiah 6, speaking about false prophets who were preaching in Israel, preaching to God's people. Preaching. God had been telling through the true prophets, destruction's coming if you don't repent. I'm going to bring discipline. I'm going to send you into exile. I'm going to ruin your city and your land if you don't repent. He kept warning them and warning them and warning them. Not for years, not for decades, but for centuries. And they would not repent. God is so patient. He's so enduring. And he's sending these true messengers one after another saying, Israel, repent or else. And they would not. And so God's speaking here about false prophets who come. And what do false prophets say? What do liars say? say to you? They, listen, God says, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. Watch this. And what's their message? Peace. Peace. Calm down. You have nothing to be ashamed about. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be worried about. Have a good self-esteem. View yourself positively. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. All is right. All is happy and bright. That's what they say. What does that sound like to you? Uh, everyone? But, God says, there is no peace. Were they ashamed? because of the abomination they have done, they were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Do you know how to blush? Have you learned how to blush before a holy God over your sin? Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says Yahweh. Thus, says Yahweh. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. What are they? Where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. You see, that's what everyone's looking for. That's why we have psychologists and psychiatrists. People want rest for their souls. That's what they want. That's what you want. That's what I want. And God says, I've been telling you how you get rest for your souls. It's the ancient way. It's the only way. It's the good way. It's the way, the truth, the life. It is Jesus Christ. That's it. But what did Israel say? But they said, we will not walk. My friends, millions, billions of people across the planet, most of the people you know are saying the same thing today. I desperately want rest for my souls. And I know you're telling me the ancient way. I know you're telling me the good way. I won't walk in it. Give me medicine. Give me alcohol. Give me sex. Give me all that feels good to the flesh. And tonight, I stand before you, and I tell you that blush is the color of repentance. Blush is the color of repentance. And my prayer tonight is that God would give us a spirit of grace so that we would blush. Christians are blushing people. Children of God are blushers. Do you blush? We ought to blush. Once upon a time, uh, we've been watching in our uh, household the uh, BBC, like was it 80s or 90s version of Pride and Prejudice, and one of the romantic—I know, I know—one of the romantic parts. She's great. Jane Austen's phenomenal. Uh, one of the—I will not blush over that. Um, Jane Austen, one—one one of the—the the magical marks of. Victorian England as romanticized by authors like Jane Austen is that people knew how to blush. You didn't go wagging your naked body down the street. If you so much as grazed the hand of this person you were attracted to, the cheeks would light red. Do we know how to blush? Do we know how to blush? Ezra 9.6 says, Oh my God. God. I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to you, my God. My friends, has God got you there? Have you have you been there? Have you continued to be there? Yes, there's seasons. There's ups and downs. I experienced them probably more than you do. I assure you. One of the most convicting, most 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 painful things about being a pastor is that I have to Constantly spend the week investigating truths in God's word and realize that I don't in any way, shape, or form live up to them. I don't live up to these. I'm preaching things to you that are so far beyond my experience, I'm ashamed. Oh, I see, Lord. You wanted me to experience shame for sin. You don't want me to be a hypocrite in front of them. You want me to blush long before they blush. You want me to blush more than they blush? Because if they see you blush, they'll blush. Jesus, in Luke 18, tells of the repentant tax collector. Now, mind you, I want you to to think about it in these terms. The Romans were the, quote, Nazis of the Jews in the first century. And tax collectors were, were collaborators with the Romans. So it it helps us put in perspective, the tax collector was the collaborator with the Nazis against the Jews. Like, that's how big it was. And Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story about a self-righteous Jewish Pharisee that goes to the temple to pray and says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like these despicable sinners, especially that tax collector over there. He collaborates with the Nazi Romans against your people. And the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his chest, saying, God, Be merciful to me, the sinner. He's right. I am the sinner. You see, real shame for our sins means that we agree when people say, look how sick that person is. Look how sick they are, how sinful they are. And we cannot think thoughts of, shut up, leave me alone. We think, oh, it's true. It's true. I'm twice as bad as they think that I am. And we have shame for our sin. Jesus says, I tell you that this man and not the other went home justified. Right with God. And just before that, in Luke 15, Jesus tells of the repentant prodigal who came to his senses and he cried out in repentance. I will rise up and go to my father and I will say to him. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, that shame for sin. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Don't treat me like a son. Treat me like a slave. And so he rose up and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, he's, he's there over the hill. His father saw him and felt compassion my friends listen listen if you have shame for sin and come to your senses and say I will repent I'll confess to my God to my Savior he sees you from the furthest way off and his only reaction to those who feel shame for sin is compassion his stomach churns and he Ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And for the first time ever, I recognize this this week. But the father ignored his son entirely. Does not respond to his son. The father said to his slaves, the son, I'm like, wouldn't you acknowledge your son who's come wretched and weary and heavy laden? Wouldn't you respond? Oh, that's okay. That, that's okay, son. That's okay. He doesn't say anything to the son. The father said to his slaves, Quickly. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf. Slaughter it. Let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. What in the world just happened? We saw a sinner have shame for sin and we see the heart of God illustrated by the God man himself in this parable saying here is my only reaction to those who have shame for their sin I cover their shame with royalty not just with a cloak not just with a rag Not just with a towel. I will wrap you in royalty. I put rings on your hands. I put sandals on your feet. I bring you in as the life of the party. And I command all my people to celebrate over this. You're telling me that that's how God responds when I say this is shame? This desire, this attitude, these words, these actions are shameful. And he says, oh, I'll cover you entirely. And not only will I cover you, I will treat you like royalty. The royal treatment for you. You see, my friends, you won't find that in your religion. You won't find that anywhere. You won't find that in Rome. You won't find that in the Buddhist temples. You won't find that in Hinduism or Mormonism or the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witness. Everything else will have you heavy laden and weary under your own inability to undo the guilt of your shame and the shame of your guilt. There's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved and that is the One who runs with compassion to kiss us see, repentance feels shame for sin, but Christ reverses that shame. He reverses it. Now, why else would Paul say that he's unashamed of the gospel? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to put shameful sinners as unashamedly right with God as his son without shame is right before him. Let me ask you a few questions, and then we're going to hit Nine ingredients of true shame for sin, and close. Let me ask you a question: How have you? Not this is. I'm not asking have you. I'm asking how have you? I'm assuming that we have. How have you been dampening your shame for sin? How have you been dampening it? How have you been medicating your shame? How have you been doing that? Uh, Where are you right now? refusing to repent with real shame or sin what will christ do if you come confessing confessing sins in shame with shame what's his only response as we've heard so then why aren't you coming why are you self-medicating why are you remaining miserable come now i want to ask you in advance. Which of these reasons of shame for sin will sufficiently stab your heart to repent? Nine of them. Nine of them. First, sin makes us guilty, and that is shameful. Sin makes us guilty, and that is shameful. We are objectively guilty of high cosmic treason against heaven's crown. That is a fact. That's indisputable. That's objective. You can't change that. That's not a feelings thing. That is objective reality. You and I are guilty of high cosmic treason against heaven's throne. Shame is the appropriate subjective feeling of objective guilt. It's the subjective feeling of objective guilt. Now, so many pastors out there, maybe some of you have come from churches like this, so many pastors are laboring to make a church a comfy place of self-esteem. They want you to feel good when you leave. The gospel shatters self-esteem and promotes Christ-esteem. Christ-esteem. Esteem Him. Esteem Him. Secondly, sin is in gratitude, and that is shameful. God is good. God is just. God is only good, and sin is only ingratitude against God's goodness. Sin is only ingratitude against God's goodness. Listen to Jeremiah two. God says, "What iniquity have your fathers found in me? What have I done? What have I done wrong?" What have I done? Now, you might be sitting here and thinking, yeah, but God has wearied me. But has he ever wearied you with anything except mercy and patience and long suffering? You know what we do every time we sin? We fashion arrows from God's goodness to shoot at him. We take his goodness, we fashion an arrow, and we shoot it at him. We assault God, we wound God with his own blessings. That's every sin that we've ever committed. Isaiah 1, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. God is is summoning all of creation, for Yahweh speaks. Sons, I have reared and raised up, but they have transgressed against me. That's shameful. Thirdly, sin makes us naked, and that is shameful. Now, I noticed that all of you came into this room fully clothed. I suspect there's a reason for that. I suspect that you don't particularly enjoy the thought of being completely naked in front of everyone else in the room. I don't think there are any nudists in here. I pray, Lord, may there be no nudists in here. Sin strips us fully. It lays us bare. We're we're exposed. We're, We're fully known to God. Wouldn't you be humiliated to be dragged through the streets, the public, completely naked? I mean, doesn't that embarrass us? But does that embarrass us more than God's eye, before whom we are always naked? He sees it all, He knows it all. How would we react if, if we projected onto the screen up here every desire in your heart, every thought in your heart? Everything that just entered your mind, how would you? I mean, we would we would run away and never want to be seen again. I, I will volunteer and tell you that if you put everything that goes through my mind up there on that screen, I ain't coming back. See ya. I'm out of here. I might go find an island. Some. I'd probably be willing to swim to an island to get away from every person on the planet because I was so ashamed. But why does why does that trouble us? More than God seeing our sins. Why? It makes no sense. It shows the insanity of our sin. Fourthly, our sins, my sins, your sins, are what put Christ to shame. And that is shameful. They degraded him, they slaughtered him, they ripped his clothes off. He hung there naked, folks. He was naked, and he was raised up as a spectacle they humiliated him they put him to open shame hebrews 12 says he endured the cross despising the shame do you understand what that means means he hated every second of their shameful behaviors toward him he saw it with contempt and did my sins put Christ to shame, and yet my sins do not put me to shame? Think of how gross. My sins held him there until it was accomplished. And will they not shame me? Did he wear purple in mockery? And will our cheeks not turn crimson with blush? We're going to sing in a couple minutes. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Fifthly, our sins put us in league with Satan. And that is shameful. It, they put us in cahoots with Satan. Every sin is allegiance with God's enemy and our accuser. Every sin I commit is allegiance with God's enemy and our accuser. Every sin is is in full view of devils who delight in our failings. That'll medicate us against sin. That'll strengthen us against sin. I mean, think about this. The moment after World War II ended, who wanted to be seen as a collaborator with the Nazis? I know it's a theme tonight. Okay? Who wanted to be seen as a collaborator with the Nazis? Everyone was against the Nazis when they failed. When they surrendered, No one wanted to be identified with Him. Unless they were just absolutely crazy. Right? Everyone wanted to be, Oh, I fought them. I I resisted. I I was part of the resistance. And who would want to be a collaborator with Satan after Calvary? When Christ has put His enemies to an open spectacle, they thought they were putting Him to open shame, and He was putting them to open shame. You see... Sixthly, sin turns us into beasts, into animals, and that is shameful. And God calls unrepentant sinners, foxes and wolves, pigs and asses in Scripture. Those are vivid portraits of despicable animals. You know, no creature on this planet experiences shame except man. No creature. Creatures fear. Creatures suffer. But they have no shame. Does a dog blush when you watch it go potty? I'm so embarrassed. Does the dog turn red if we watch him eat his vomit? No shame. And yet, Philippians 3.19 speaks of us in our sinful condition and says that our glory was in our shame. That's not happening in hell, folks. There's no more glorying and shame in hell. Seventhly, in every sin, there's stupidity. And that is shameful. Sin believes temptation. Sin believes lies over God's promises. Sin is stupid, sin is senseless, sin is insane, period. Eighthly, sins we commit, you and I as Christians, sins we commit in Christ are far worse than the sins of heathens, the sins of pagans, the sins of unbelievers, because we act against Scripture, we act against the Holy Spirit, We act against our own experience in Christ, even if you're a second old in Christ. We act against so much more than they. And finally, this one is the most devilish of all. Our sins are worse than the sins of Satan and his demons. You might say, what? And this is defensible. Did Satan and his demons, when they rebelled, did they sin against Christ's blood? Did they knowingly sin against one who had made atonement for them? And yet, guess what you and I do every day? We say there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And here I go again, sinning and sinning sinning. Did they sin against God's patience? No. As soon as they left, he damned them. Done. He didn't sin against their uh, God's patience, and you and I, that's all we do. He's patient, and patient, and patient. His kindness leads us to repentance. All our sins are committed against God's patience. Did Satan and his demons sin against some previous example before them of what it looks like to sin and what the consequences are? No, they were first. They sinned. There was no warning before them. But you and I have how many examples, not just of Satan and his demons, not just of Adam and Eve, but a whole record in Scripture of what sin always brings, a whole history of what sin always brings, and yet we keep doing it. We see the devil's fall, we see the world drown in Genesis 6, we see Sodom burned, and we keep sinning. It is utter insanity. We are like rats snatching cheese from a trap surrounded by millions of dead rodents caught in other traps, and yet we keep doing it. Now, here's where we conclude. Life in Christ. Life in Christ. Here's life in Christ. Hebrews 12. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He hated it. He looked down on their shaming. He held it all with contempt. Maybe not something we typically thought about Jesus suffering there under the wrath of God as they spit on him, as they tore his clothes off and and cast lots for them, as they they humiliated him with, with vinegar to make him more thirsty. He hated all of it. He looked down on it. You do not know who you're shaming. And he bore all the shame. For my every shameless desire and decision. All that shame was mine. And and, and and countless other shames that he experienced unseen to the eyes under the wrath of God. He walked in the garden there with our first parents and he called out to them when they were hiding in their shame. He rose from the grave and when his shameful disciples were hiding in their shame, he said, go get my brothers. He's not ashamed to call us repenters his brothers this is astounding stuff friend if you've not yet turned from sin and seen your sin and sorrowed over your sin and confessed your sin with shame do so now because he's not ashamed to call you brother and he does not get rid of brothers if you come ashamed of your sin He'll never be ashamed of you. Because of his work. Because of his blood. Because of his righteousness. Because of his own heart. So how are you dampening? How have you been dampening your shame for sin? Which of those reasons stabbed your heart with shame for sin? Where have you been refusing to really repent with real shame for sin? And best of all, what will Christ do and keep doing and always do if you and I come to him confessing with shame for sin? Father, we ask now that as we sing and discuss these matters, O God, would your spirit bring shame for sin and bring an unashamed zeal for the gospel of Christ who bore it all. Ashamed, we do hear our mocking voice call out among the scoffers. But upward, we look and see Him there who put an end to all our sin. He's our confidence. He's our righteousness. We've got none of our own. And so, Father, we ask that You give rest to our very souls. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. We meet on Sundays at 5.30pm. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out Cal Christian College Dot edu tune in next tuesday for the next episode in our series until he returns may the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face shine upon you